Hi, ladies and gentlemen. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by a sponsor. Finally, we got ourselves a sponsor. Um, thanks to you guys, thanks to the listeners. Uh, due to the statistics, we have had uh, about 13 episodes and we've had 1,900 downloads. And funnily enough, a lot of those have been in Japan. So hello to uh, anybody and everybody out in Japan listening to us. Um, so yeah, this episode is, uh, we're very grateful for you guys, the listeners. We've, you've made this sort of happen. We just started out as just a little fun uh, thing between me and Matt. And we had sort of visions of making it into something, but thanks to you guys actually listening and talking about us and spreading the word. Um, uh, yeah, we've got ourselves in a position where we can approach a sponsor and lifeofeducation.com has seen the value in the work that we're doing, the conversations that we're having and the sort of the golden nuggets of information and education that we're trying to share with people and they've decided that they uh, they want to sponsor us. So, um, to tell you a little bit about them, a Life of Education is the UAE's only dedicated health and fitness educational website teaching health and fitness enthusiasts content from a variety of sections of the health and fitness world. So that with talks in lec- in, uh, in areas in uh, nutrition, anatomy and physiology, sports medicine, female development, yoga, pilates, strength and conditioning, and then more to be added in the future. Uh, Allo's mission is to bring leading experts from around the world of health and fitness together on one platform to share their knowledge and expertise on a global scale. So, uh, lifeofeducation.com is going to launch uh, in the coming months, so we're very grateful to have uh, their support. Uh, This episode today is episode number 14. We have Chris Bryan, who's an um, ex-Irish open water international swimmer. Uh, He's going to talk to us a little bit about uh, kind of his career, what it takes to be a swimmer, an elite swimmer, the hours he does in the pool, and then talks a little bit about uh, a PhD published paper that he did in uh, psychological resilience. So, uh, yeah, let's get on with it. Here's episode 14 with Chris Bryan. and Matt, say hello Matt, no. and we have Chris Bryan with us, say hi Chris. How you doing? Um, so yeah, this has been a while since we did our last one. Uh, I was just travelling, we've just been travelling, just just somewhere catching up on us. Um, we've got a lot in the book now to try and get through the next couple of couple of months. You've got uh, shitloads. Yeah, there's a few, hopefully that we'll get some, some good names in. But we're here with Chris, Chris is a swimmer from Ireland, um, ex International open water swimmer, isn't it? That's right. So we met uh, over the summer at a focus group in up and running, um, just talking about kind of the challenges that the trainers and the coaches face in Dubai, and uh, what happens when uh, you sort of trying to refer people over to um, to physios and, and doctors and how it's gonna how it's gonna kind of affect in the channels of communication. Um, so Chris, if you want to just introduce yourself, I'll stop waffling. Um, 
just how where you're from and kind of how you made the move out to Dubai and whatever else has been going on in your past. Where are you from in Ireland? Yeah, I'm from uh, County Clare, so um, up west, good surfing, good tourist spot, fine cliffs. But um, I've just been in Dubai since uh, January this year, uh, working in Fit Republic as aquatics coach and personal trainer. And as you mentioned, I was an international athlete the past 10 years uh, swimming. So, you know, I did pool swimming, but also uh, I made it as a 10k uh, open water. So I was, you know, ace in world championships, 16th in world championships, missed the Olympics last year, photo finish in London 2012. So but a few ups and downs like anyone else. And um, you, you missed, you missed, you missed, um, you missed the, what are you doing, Matt? You Sorry, missed the uh, Instagram, it? What were you saying? You missed the Olympics 2012? Uh, yeah, long, long story, but um, I was 8th in World Championships in uh, 2011, 2012, I turned out contracting shingles uh, two days before my qualifier. Shingles? Shingles so is no joke. So I went and I raced the 10k, and at the end of the 10k, I was alive, sitting at the back of the pack, made a push. Turned out I uh, was a photo finish for the last spot. So uh, they, I missed, uh, they gave it to the other guy, but there was another place coming back. And so they gave it to me, and I'm all good going to the Olympics, and week beforehand they sent this kid from Guam whose dad was on FINA committee so I went to London and I didn't race so I was a first reserve they gave me as a race really? so it was a pretty pretty interesting yeah. experience what was the uh, what was the event what was the distance uh, 10 kilometers so it's like a in marathon pool. yeah no open water so in the in serpentine how do you do a photo finish in park so it's it's, it's laps so it's, it's very like uh, cycling you know where you're drafting all the time it's very hard to break away and swimming there's a huge draft effect if you look at the resistance of the water so there's a huge pull effect as you're going through the water like a, like a uh, slipstream yeah huge slipstream and so everyone really just swims as a big big pack and there's small breakaways but it's hard to break away so usually it's almost the way i race it is a nine and a half k draft a 500 meter and <laughs> absolute all-out sprint right. at the end of an hour hour 50 minutes and that's what i'm good at yeah i'm not good at going threshold for two hours i'm good at going below threshold and then just you know Blowing it up. It's two hours. Um, it's not that. Two hours. About two hours. But it works out. dragging each other's feet and things like that. It is, yeah. Uh, my first European in 2010, I came out with two black eyes. And, <laughs> um, you know, I've got a few guys got cracked teeth. But at, 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 it's usually the more novice events. You know, the younger kids who are excited and hear about these, you know, rough and tumble. But it's hard. You're swimming, your head is down. You don't really see yeah. You know, yeah. the arms flailing all the time. But, yeah, you get good at it and being relaxed, conserving energy. Well, then, and then another World Champions event is 25k, so I was ninth in, in uh, Europeans in uh, 2014 and 25k, five hour race. In the, in the water? In the water, yeah. So talk about your, your, your fingers and toes getting wrinkly. Yeah, man. That's the least of my worries in the end. What water are you in? <laughs> You're in the ocean. So it depends. Lakes, uh, seas, rivers. Um, How cold you know, is that? I want to, well, being the Irish man, I'm, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm Ingers is bliss usually when I was growing up. But of course I did all my training in the pool. And like fifteen hundred and stuff like that, but the ten k is what I excelled in. Yeah. And um, but yeah, it's different in different conditions, different shop, different mm. temperature. It can be you know, the degrees are sixteen degrees, but you know where Rio was Copacabana Beach, it was quite you know a test event the year before, and big waves, but salt water gives that extra buoyancy. You've been in lakes, so less buoyancy, a bit fresher, a bit flatter, but if there's a wind, the chop is hard. So you know, it's all you know different manners of body. It's exciting. Like, I, Seems boring, two hours of swimming, but uh, fifteen hundred meters, which would be fifteen minutes up and down, is okay, ten times more boring than just two hours constantly conserving, constantly mm. calculating, tracking, checking your spot, trying to conserve. Then you know it's like a feeding platform every lap. So 
but usually 10k would be six laps or 1.6 or five laps or 2k. So you know, if a coach, we've got a feeling coach uh, drink at the end of the, end of the pole. You know, YouTube it. You know, you'll yeah. see it. It's pretty hardcore stuff. Uh, hopefully, it'll get bigger, like uh, like uh, obviously Tour de France and sure. professional cycling is. But so far, we're the you know the men out in the middle of the sea where it's exciting, <laughs> but no one knows. What's yeah, going is on. the ocean that you do, or is it like you said it was in Hyde Park? So she gets in this lake, yeah, it's in the lake and river sometimes as well. The biggest kind of Grand Prix circuit is in Argentina, 88k river swim. Which um, do you prefer? I mean, shorter. Oh, what? I prefer a C, to be honest. I like the extra bit of buoyancy. I was going to say, yeah. I'm not one of the taller athletes, so, you know, the longer you are, the better you float almost, you know, longer boats go faster. Yeah. Where if you're a bit shorter, it's harder to sit in the water a bit more, so the extra buoyancy for me is a little bit better. And you're not fighting much more current? Uh, it, depends if you're going, it depends if you're going with the current or against the current. Sometimes you do laps, so sometimes it's uh, depending on how the tides are going, even. Yeah. And you have a qualifier, the tides turn halfway. Yeah. So you're flying it for halfway, and all of a sudden the tides turn. Oh, you can tell. <laughs> yeah. You must be able to really tell. You can feel it. In some races, like if you're trying to turn the turn the buoy to go around, and the current's so strong against you, <laughs> if you undercut it, if you do it wrong, it's almost people have to pull out because they've undercut where they're going to go, and they just can't. You know, you take yeah. a big wide burst if you know the current's going around. Jesus. It's uh, that. I love it now. I'm getting excited thinking about it. Yeah. But at the moment, I'm uh, moving into the professional world and. I keep on tipping over, but... Um, so what kind of prep are you doing? You've got a 10K event coming up. What are you swimming at? Like, What's your training? What's your week look like? You know, and that's you know, different approaches. And I've been lucky where, you know, I've been in performance centre in Ireland over 10 years. And being in performance centre, we turn to having about six, seven, eight different international top quality coaches. And through that, you see a different range of personalities, training point of views, you know. And, and I, for me, for my coaching, and, you know, and luckily I got to work with, you know, top quality training, conditioning, physios, sports science and everyone you work with you take little some things are I always kind of go um, G.I. Joe good in you know garbage out yeah. and someone you meet you always pick on you know type things when I, was, when I was racing my best up to 2012 and I was doing high high mileage but I was contrasting it so I look at training again we're talking about endurance sport uh, at the moment but I look at training through uh, you know aerobic and then anaerobic so and then you break that into power and capacity so if you're working aerobic power, anaerobic power all the time, you start losing that base. You start, you know, if you're doing, I'm not sure if people who swim or run, if you are hitting threshold all the time, as much as your body gets efficient at doing that, it becomes quite inefficient at that kind of rate of contraction. How quickly can you can you produce produce energy? That anaerobic capacity starts being brought down. You keep dampening that. Same with that aerobic capacity. So you know, my coach, we did, you know, very well periodized training where. We started off going very much capacity, so very long, aerobic, never touching threshold for the first three, four weeks. Very, very short sprints, like creatine phosphate stuff. You know, lactate production, but not much tolerance. Mm. And then we get a really good base. Then we start building on that kind of short rest stuff, hitting threshold, trying to hold the uh, pacing times. Mm-hmm. Over the past four years, we moved towards, well, if it's 10K, if I want to hold 106 pace per 100, well, every day we're going to come in and see how many I can do. And some days, it was absolutely great. And easy. Other days, absolutely impossible. So one day I'm training, you know, below threshold. The next day it's well above threshold, and and it just doesn't make sense. Yeah. Again, I think it's very individual. And what I've learned from training with female athletes and male athletes is female athletes are much uh, able to tolerate that kind of, you know, um, hitting threshold every day. The muscle mass isn't the same. The recovery isn't the same. Where you look at a male athlete, quite, actually quite a quite muscular one, I think my body type would I put on muscle quite easily. 
um, that you know I can hit things really, really good, get a really good training benefit. But you know, hitting the threshold and above threshold and you know going into lactate tolerance knocks me for two, three days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And good, yeah. that all of a sudden, if I keep hitting it every single day, the quality of those sessions go down lower and lower. And when I'm looking at a two-hour race, it's quite different to an hour. So I look at it as energy efficiency. Mm. So you know, if I look at uh, the whole idea of you know carb loading, how much energy you have, they say you know carb load up to ninety minutes. Beyond that, you have to take supplementation. Right. But it's even looking at you know how you uh, utilize energy throughout that. So if I'm training my body to you know rain, hit, or shine to be exhausted to just keep going, on those days I'm fatigued. I'm recruiting every single thing I have. I'm teaching my body to use every single pathway I have, to use every bit of energy I have, trying to hit that. Know, rate of anaerobic exercise all the time but for a 10k swim I don't want to be going straight out using every bit of my, my you know recruiting all my muscle because it's going to be exhausting yeah. by the time I get to the end I won't be able to sustain it that muscular yeah. endurance is going to kill me and that's what I found over the past four years of doing that kind of training like a train a two hour session where I probably hit you know when I get build up to probably an hour 45 of race pace but again it's, it's different it's in training and then when you race to perform your body is that much more ready to perform that every single race um, I blew up. So what, what I tried to do before 2012 was you know, do that big, big mileage, bigger than what I did before. So we're talking about 100 kilometer weeks in the pool. And, and we periodized that. I, my biggest block would have been, uh, I do four week blocks. I go like 100, 105, 115, and then a week is 60K. But I, within that, in the morning, they used to come and do like 16K heart rate, I have quite a low heart rate, you know, 120 to 140, mm. and so quite low, low aerobic, and I do that for almost four hours, the and, but I'll be thinking about relax, relax, trying to like, you yeah. know, lower my muscle recruitment, be efficient swimming, and I come four hours and boom, yeah, in the morning sometimes, up to 16, 17k, but then I come back in the evenings, and I feel like a, refuel like a horse, um, and then come back in the evenings, and I do like 4k, and the 4k, all would be warm up, five by 100 meters, send one to five, so that's really one, Super quality hundred, when I'd have to swim super fucking fast. Excuse my yeah. language, and um, and then back in the evening, next day we do more recovery, then maybe technique, and the next day do big mileage again. And I got very good at getting this really nice relaxed pace where it was never fatiguing to do that mileage, and then I'm always able to step up, and I still have that capacity. And of course, as we build, you do more and more tolerant stuff. It takes less and less energy. Where in the past four years, I decided to just eight k every session. Um, at least 60, 70 percent of the session was almost a threshold, and and every time I raced, I blew up at a kilometer to go. Yeah. Instead of sitting at the back of the pack and working my way up, I try to sit at the front of the pack because you know if I'm at the back of the pack, possibility is I might get to the front of the pack. Sure. And when the break happens, I'm not there, so it's a bit riskier. And mm. um, so obviously, if I can, you sit at the front um, and sit there all the way. Yeah. And what I did in the qualifier this year, I sat in the front all the way for 9k, and then all of a sudden. Wheels came off, and mm-hmm. um, you can say mind over matter, but yeah. you know I kept pushing. I, I can guarantee I did everything I could in that last lap, but last five minutes. Sure. You know, and and then hey, it's been a up and down, but I learned a lot from there. Yeah. But again, it's very you know body types, but uh, what you see in, in swimming and triathlon is triathlon especially because that's kind of what I'd I'd really focus on now with kind of triathlon and trying to prepare people for that Olympic triathlon distance and trying to explain to people that. And speed is so important. What's the distance for, the uh, for a triathlon? Yeah, fifteen hundred meter swim. But again, it's like a two hour race. You know, at the top end, it could be up to three hours. But you That's don't for an Olympic triathlon. For an Olympic triathlon, yeah. So fifteen hundred meter swim. Fifteen hundred meter swim. Yeah. And What's the cycle. And then on the the run of the ten k, and the bike. I didn't even focus on the bike. Yeah. <laughs> 
people are gonna gonna be saying things. I can't remember the the, length of, the bike is probably about an hour in between. So usually it's kind of like a you know twenty minute swim, hour bike, and you know half an hour run if you're mm. you know, obviously a good ten k runner. And um, but on the swim, you know you like for me for a race, the last thing I want to do is go all out the first fifteen minutes. People in the swim are turning out doing that because they're so used to just doing threshold hundreds, fifteen hundred meter. And that's how you train fifteen hundred meter in the pool. You see, you try you know hold. It's only a fifteen minute event. You know, you're not going to run out of energy. So you want to move on your lactate tolerance to be able to hold the best possible pace, mm-hmm. which is great for 1,500-meter swim. Mm-hmm. But if it's 1,500-meter at the start of a two-hour race, it just logically doesn't make sense yeah. to train your body to burn as much possible energy in the shortest period of time. Mm-hmm. That's what maximizing your lactate threshold is. Yeah. Just training explain your body. That, just for the guys who don't know, explain what the, the lactate threshold is, essentially. Uh, lactate threshold is, you know, if you're in a bunch of hundreds, it's... How is the point of your body where you're producing so much lactate that you can't maintain a pace? Yeah. So it's that turning point where you know you're getting that feeling of fatigue and that lethargic. It's that buildup of lactate acid that you actually can't sustain beyond that, and that's the pace you can then hold. And let's say for about 15 minutes or so. And when you go beyond the threshold, it's that pace where you you just can't where the, the production of lactate and then your removal system mm. and for that lactate just isn't good enough. Below threshold is where actually it's quite comfortable. You can kind of you know, you're always producing lactate. Yeah. And, you know, if you want, you know, minimals, you know, below lactate work is probably below kind of, you know, two, three is very aerobic work. Mm. At threshold, we're pushing on, you know, five, six, seven, both thresholds, seven and above. And those people who can really produce energy and really good sprinters, some of them can produce up, up, you know, 16, 17, 18 plus. And so, you know, the maximizing your lactate is how much anaerobic energy you can use in one time which is great, but for an endurance event, if you're training your body to do that, well then you're going to be running out of energy when it most counts at the end of the race. So if you're able to, I always say, we train for the first boy, you, you train at speed at first 100 meters, because it's going to be a shit fight. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're stuck behind these breaststrokers and people, <laughs> and when you, like, even, I, you know, I don't want to be arrogant, but I'm a pretty good swimmer. Yeah. Yeah. But you put me at the very back of a pack of a, you know, recreational triathlon, I'm never going to get to the front. Yeah. You know, I'm climbing over, but it's impossible. So it's that 100 meters that's so important, and then the art of drafting, you won't get into that, the art of drafting, maintaining, and then just trying to save your legs. Like wetsuits are amazing in body position. Do people in swimming, so in cycling, if you're peloton, the guys kind of know, you know, if you're, not, if you're in a chasing pack, everyone needs to put a shift in and bring the pack forward and bring the pack closer to the, to the leading pack. So everyone sort of rotates, rotates, rotates. Is it that kind of... You do that, but over 1,500 meters, it's just, it's just too short. Too short. People get out, and the fast swimmers stay there and tip over. If you're any good at drafting, people always talk about drafting at the feet, and um, but drafting at the feet isn't actually very helpful. You get a bit of a pull, and um, but if you start kicking hard, that's how you knock someone off your feet. It turns from, you know, a bit of a pull to resistance. It's at the hip that you really get that huge pull. Yeah, we did some stuff in yeah. hydrotherapy when I was studying. I remember now where somebody's walking through water. I can't remember exactly what it is. Somebody's walking through water, and depending how close the therapist stands behind them, so it's. It's either, if you stand at a certain kind of, not too far where you, you can't reach them, yeah. but then the immediately right behind them, you you wreck the draft. Yeah, so they're, yeah. they're break the water, the water comes behind them, swirls yeah, around. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then as, if you stand in the middle of that, yeah. you get in the way, so it slows them down. Or yeah. does that speed it up? One speeds and one slows. Yeah, well, like, again, if you're at someone's hip, the guy you're drafting off their hip will actually pull them back. You'll feel like there's a weight 
The way I kind of think about it, it's even like, you know, if you're drafting behind a bus, cycling. Yeah. You know, at the moment, that bus is taking up the space of all that air. Yeah. So when that bus moves forward, well, all of a sudden, there's a big uh, vacuum. Okay, yeah. Well, obviously, it's more than to reach a point of a vacuum yeah, where, yeah. you know, something, the air needs to rush in to fill that space. Yeah. So the air rushes in, and that's what gets that suck. Same with the water, then. It's so much, you know, so much denser. That if you're moving forward, all the water that you you uh, you occupy displaces, yeah. so water sucks in from all sides, and so it pulls you forward. And but it happens quite quickly. So if you're at the feet, you'll feel a bit of a suck. But if you're at the hip, it actually feels it straight away. Yeah. You really feel that suck. But also, I assume there's a suck backwards. I actually don't know the physics behind. I can't remember. The pull you feel. It's so long ago since I did it. It was 2008. But we did the, we did some sort of drills where you're walking through like the shallow end. You got the water at your hip. And if you stand a certain distance behind them, if you stand right behind them, yeah. like where you're, you're pretty much touching them, and you follow their pattern, right foot, right foot, left foot, left foot, yeah, yeah. I think you slow them down. Because yeah, they feel because, a pull on the Yeah, they back. feel a pull because the, yeah, water's yeah. Not, the water's not flowing in behind exactly. them because you're there. But if you go back further, you create more of a space, yeah. so the water swirls in, it's easier for them. It's easier, to, exactly. And yeah. a similar pull the person behind would get. Yeah. But what I do for people who want to try to feel that is uh, just do a kick first. You know, can I do a kick or put fins on? And all you want to do is you both push off and and make sure the person drafting at your your shoulder at the other person's hip, and you'll just feel that pull. Or the first person pushes off nice and easy, and the person behind them overtakes them. That person getting overtake taken has to quickly jump on their hip, and you'll feel the pull. Even the person who's trying to draft go without fins, and you won't believe how much you can get that pull. But with the boards, you can kind of, you know, your head's above the water, you can kind of feel right. um, But I think they're really good drills just to try that, that drafting of the hip. 99% of triathletes I talk to are doing it wrong. Yeah, <laughs> really some smart bastards in the world. Like at some point, it's all just a case of just jump in the water and swim. And exactly. some smart yeah, but, yeah it, it, it completely depends on the level, right? It completely yeah. depends on the level of what you're doing. Um, but there's simple things like, you know, yourself, you store energy in the muscles. So, you know, if you're using your legs from the very, very beginning, mm. you know, you're about to use your legs, you almost completely for the next cycle in the run yeah, yeah. so honestly you know you look at like 2b kicks or you know really not pushing your legs too much even for the everyday recreational triathlete you want to find a way to improve your body position and um, if we go into it you know again one of the things that I've seen in Dubai is just that lack of flexibility of people here oh yeah and sure. it's a uh, really stand out in swimming swimming the sport that when you, you say know, Dubai just to cut off when you say Dubai have you noticed a difference in your previous Career and I, I see similar trends, but I, I've seen it stronger here. Okay, uh, stronger here, and I guess because the population I see are, and uh, mostly people who have a, have a bit of money are coming to spend spend money on swimming and uh, personal training, and those people with a bit of money generally have office jobs. Mm. Yeah. and those office jobs, you know, are quite sedentary, and sitting and down for hours a day. Ambitious yeah. people, yeah. and in a way, I'm kind of thinking, gee, I'm probably seeing the best of the population because these are the people who are bothering their ass to come and swim. Mm. Yeah, you know, so yeah. like, what about all those people I don't see? Uh, generally people struggle with the same things, you know, all oh, my legs are heavy, they're sinking, I'm trying to breathe but I'm swallowing water, and I can tell you exactly how to do it, yeah. um, but the thing is, these people can't get into those positions on land, you know, and um, if, if their hip flexors are so tight that they can't actually bring their leg um, directly behind them, their knee behind their body, um, yeah. then of course their legs are going to be sinking, they're going to have a deeper tunnel, more mm -hmm. resistance when they swim. Not gonna be able to get that back kick. They're kicking from their knee the whole time, yeah. which uh, shortens the lever, and you don't get that same pressure on your yeah. foot. Interesting. And then yeah. the other thing is really shoulders. You, people uh, are really rounded scapula. See this real tightness in their chest. 
and this real kyphotic shoulder and back. And then the biggest thing you see that then as well is this um, this uh, pigeon chinning neck mm. position. And and you often see it with people, even even I've seen young young girls girls in their twenties with this big lump on their back of their neck. Yeah, man, fatty um, lumps. Which I've looked into it before, it's kind of hypertrophy of tissue. And, and I think I was saying if you, your head is 12 kg, if you're directly ears above your shoulders, it's about 12 kg, four through your neck. You tilt a little bit forward, it goes to 32 kg, four through your neck, and even a little bit more, it's 42 kg. Yeah. Um, and it's just that body, I think it's, I've read up on this before, it's like that they have to go through an eccentric, an eccentric hold. The eccentric hold then through those moments on the neck, which is holding on to that, hi that hypertrophy on the neck, yeah. that, that tissue, and then that rounding of the, the tightness of the chest. And so I try not doing a lot of you know, people come to swim. I'm saying you just can't do it on land. So I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm bringing them on, on land and I'm doing things like uh, I call them kind of Cuban presses. You know, uh, you know, immediately uh, lifting your shoulders and then externally rotating. Yeah, and just with light weights doing upright rows. And then doing very simple things then for hip flexors. You see this real lordotic back then as well. The other thing I see, you know, which really shows in the pool, and um, because in swimming, you know, it's you know it's a water sport, so it's similar. You want to apply a pressure on the water to go forward, same as kayaking, canoeing. But in swimming, your boat isn't a nice, stable uh, canoe or kayak made of you know, you know, strong material. It's your own body and torso. Where people, you know, you have these paddles and it's going through your boat. Mm. So you're applying a pressure through your hand that has to propel your body forward. And it's that transfer of energy through your core. And people just cannot get their head around. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's, every time they breathe, you know, you've got to hold this almost isometric contraction and through your body the whole time. Because you're using your paddles, your engine, your feet, the whole time propelling your body forward and you want to go straight. But people aren't able to do that. Especially if they have this huge lordotic back, those forces are not traveling straight through. I have to do a lot of pelvic tilts, I do a lot of um, people with very, very tight glutes. And I have to do a lot of, uh, I used to do a lot of Pilates and stuff before, so a lot of glute me strengthening yeah. stuff as well. And, you know, the fire hydrant kind of exercises, yeah. clams, sideline clams, uh, pelvic tilts, bridging, and, and then stretching. You know, again, the, the literature around stretching is. Um, is quite you know argumentative about whether it's good, whether it's not. And I'll tell you my point of view of ten years in elite sport and five years in coaching that you know stretching does bloody yeah. work. Yeah. yeah. But I will say the timing makes a big difference. So yeah, if you want to get a range of movement, I I, I you know recommend you know a bit of kind of like dynamic stretching beforehand. But obviously warm up because you don't want to pull anything. But the gains in stretching are to be made post session when you're warmed up. Um, and then the recovery for the next session, the difference in stretching post-session immediately afterwards are huge compared to doing it beforehand, doing it two hours after. And um, you know, I'd always recommend, yeah, okay, I need to go home and refuel. And I'm going to nutrition now because, again, the whole side I can go on about. Um, but, you know, I look at, you know, if you're looking at people not losing weight, athletes trying to refuel, I look at this, your muscle like a sponge. You know, when you've exercised, you know, there's that contraction, you do 30 minutes, you put a sponge in the water and soaks up the water compared to just a, a non-squeeze sponge lying yeah. on the water. At the first 30 minutes, that optimal amount to uptake that um, carbohydrate protein, if you can say, you take them together, and then that two hours main meal. But have a snack, stretch straight after. And yet For swimming, if you're stuck, first of all, what's great is even getting that range of movement. So I think one thing is habits for getting your range of movement back. 
So doing these same stretches day after day, trying to endeavor yeah. to get to these movements, I think does huge amounts for your flexibility. And um, even ignoring that static stretching, so endeavoring to try to swim in those yeah. um, planes that you're trying to swim in, and then following it up by you know um, extra lengths that you probably aren't going to get to when you're swimming, but when your body's warmed up like that, there's huge gains to be made. Sure. And that's what I see in other population then is like seven to 12 year old kids, and I see them, and that's probably the biggest difference in Dubai than anywhere else I've been in the world, is inflexible seven to 12 year old kids. And I get to see it all the times in the schools as well, kids getting injured, soft tissue injuries, and you're like, what, how? You're made of like plastic. Yeah, yeah. and like from, from a lead force perspective, you know, uh, an own story for myself is trying to get this high elbow catch if anyone's into this high end swimming to really hold a lot of water, elbows high, and that's the whole flexibility side that actually in British schools and you know, when you say all these Chinese stories, they do those stretches from a very young age. Mm. I didn't join a performance until I was 16, and I'd never heard of these stretches. And then from then on, my even sprint performance in the pool was lower because I just can't hold enough water because I can't get my body in that, What's the in that range. It's an internal rotation okay. uh, of your shoulder. Um, but I have to go a little bit wider than my shoulder to get that nice high elbow, where some of the best in the world just get into it so effortlessly. Yeah. Um, and it really affects it. And I, I just went through a year, two years of trying to get that back. And I turned out injuring my shoulder a few times. I turned out, I'm a bit mad, I'm a bit obsessive to be honest. <laughs> I was sleeping in certain positions to maximize my, really, you call it sleep and stretch, you know, you're 90 yeah. degrees of the shoulder, elbow, lie down on your side and you internally rotate. And, <laughs> yeah, okay. and, but I couldn't make those gains at 16, 17. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was yeah. too late. And these kids that I see coming in, and I really see that lower, the biggest problems, not the neck so much, I do see the shoulder, the TD, the wing scapula all the time. Sure. So I have to do a lot of like push-up pluses, you know, even... Uh, chest press up where you're working this uh, serrator and anterior yeah, anterior yeah, yeah. serratus is that I'm not yeah, sure yeah, yeah, yeah. the yeah, right yeah. muscle um, but uh, just try and get those shoulders back and down and um, again these are 10, 11 year old kids who can't when we say stream like get their hands over their head yeah. in a tight position already and um, and maybe and even kids who oh what, what other sports do you play because I'm always prodding to try and figure out what's going on yeah, we all play good. soccer but I can guarantee they're not running properly mm. you know they're running in a very short range with very tight springs, which is all well and good, but they're just not getting that range of movement. I think that's the biggest problem. Of course there's an entry, but I don't think they're getting the ranges they need. And again, I don't know, I haven't seen the school programs, but again, like I said before, I'm seeing a population whose parents have decided to send these kids for sport, yeah. which is quite encouraging. And what about all the kids who aren't coming to see me? Um, and that's why I'm like, this is very worrying. And again, you know, you're trying to do these stretching stuff for kids and parents send them to swim, there's so much I can do, and yeah. um, I always try to build these rehab stuff around around the pool, you know. And even for my clients, adult clients, I get a lot of low back pain and stuff. But people are so busy here. Uh, I'm sure I'm sure physios see the whole time is how often do you do their clients actually come and do what they ask them, you know? And you can't blame the people who are busy. So I always try and do it the first ten minutes of a session. But as a personal trainer, you know, you only have an hour, two hours to do yeah, the yeah. session. And these people don't want to be sitting there and saying, "Oh, long-term benefits, sir." Yeah, yeah, you know. Stuck, yeah. And there's a lot of trust there. I try to bring it in, but it, but you know, it's a high-demand profession. People want to see results quick. Yeah. And in my high mind, I'm like, lose weight or you know, back pain when they're 50. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of like, I know you want to lose weight, but like yeah. alarm bells are going off in my head for what's going to happen to well, you. Well, yeah, in I mean, even 15 years even time. That, even sure, if you want to lose weight, if you want to push yourself to the point where you're going to be able to train in a zone that can burn some weight, we need to get you moving. So we yeah. need to work on your mobility, we need to work on your flexibility. So 
like for me again, I'm, <laughs> I, I go on to the. I'm, I'm finishing a PhD in psychology, like psychological resilience, and um, in achievement contexts. So why it's achievement context is um, psychological resilience is of course a buzzword. We've all heard of it. What is it? Um, so it's kind of learning and bouncing back from failure. Okay. And even they look at it more in third third world countries. What did you call it? Resilience. Uh, resilience. Yeah. Okay. Just psychological um, resilience. Psychological okay. resilience. Got it. Yeah. Um, and they look at it. You know, one of the big major studies was in like uh, 1970s. They look at kids um, in like a Hawaiian island and how they um, had you know they were almost abused as kids or one single uh, you know families with one parent. And all of a sudden, these kids start doing amazing things. So they've learned, you know, from setbacks and hardships, they've become stronger and better people for it in a way. But um, you know, that this is like severe, significant adversity. But it's a buzzword in day-to-day -day sport. You see articles in the paper. You'll see in Harvard Business Review and work, you know, the importance of resilience and building it. But you know, the argument in psychology is well, is resilience even really necessary in a healthy, mentally healthy population who really just want to make money or yeah. achieve Olympic gold medal? You know, compared to people who've lost a family member of you know severe psychological trauma, I'm saying actually, well, it really is important, and um, that's what I'm doing. I'm kind of stressing the relevance of what psychological resilience is in um, in achievement context and specifically work and sport. And um, but I suppose if I think about you know, well, what, how do I exercise that day to day? And that's what I do think about. You know, of course, I you know try to stress with the client about their day to day lives, and they think about losing weight and I'm making a trip to the gym. But you, you know as well. How much energy do they expend in that one gym session compared to even day to day? It's not going to be, it's probably going to be maximum 20% of their daily energy expenditure. So what I see a role of personal training or physical activity is, is actually you're creating a habit that you, you know, you structure your whole day and life around. So I'm educating on, you know, um, you know post posture and daily habits, then even trying to stress, well, you know, Okay, what, what really do you want to get out of this? Okay, I want to lose weight, I want to do a triathlon. And okay, well, what's your actual, um, you know, what are your conditions to do that? You know, because that's what people don't realize is, you know, what conditions are you trying to do this in? I'm trying to do it with a family, I'm trying to do a full-time job. Mm -hmm. You know, and those things are very important, not just the, the immediate, you know, oh, I have a lack of strength in A, B, and C. You know, I was trying to, you know, bring that into the, the, the bigger picture. Yeah. And as you probably know, you know, then, you know, the, the yeah, kind of thing is, is that six packs are made in the kitchen, not in the gym. I really believe that. You know, diet is so important, yeah, and uh, compared to what we're doing, but again, it's so individual. And um, but it's really trying to build up people to, you know, figure out. Well, okay, you know, if my environment is like this, and this is what I have to do, well, you know, what I'm, I, I like to look at a more of a strength-based model. Of, well, what are you good at? You know, you decided to lose weight. You obviously think you can lose weight. You've lost weight before, you know, or you know, if you're looking for point of view of even consulting on, you know, your own performance. You know, you're here, you're you're chatting, you want to do better, you want to excel in sport. You know, um, why do you think you're here? Even at your own day job, someone's employed you. Someone thinks you're yeah. good enough to do this job, right? Yeah. And so you're trying to focus on, well, what makes you good at what you do or what made you be able to come here right here and now and try to say, okay, well, well done, what are your strengths? And then, okay, what are the challenges you foresee? And then, then you try and get things in place. You know, and well, my look at resilience is learning from failure. So yeah, knowing that things your, are going to go wrong, right? Talk about your study a little bit. What do you? What's the research that you're doing? So I uh, I published a paper there last week, so it'll be online and um, the next week or so. I have it up in ResearchGate. Awesome. If anyone knows it, um, but I, I basically looked at 52 studies between work and sport, and um, so two very similar and um, kind of symbiotic um, venues where people are kind of goal-oriented behavior. Um, and it's really minor to moderate stress, no major life adversity. But you have things like job loss, you know, um, 
and you know performance failure, fallouts with coaches, managers, etc., etc. And then she's trying to find out, well, you know, what is psychological resilience? And what I'm looking at is this dual pathway model where we're not just looking at, you know, um, chronic stress where things happen and you have to learn from them and you, you know, all of a sudden you fail and like entrepreneurship, you know, and what are the roots you get back? Who are your colleagues to support you? How are you optimistic? All those small things. But I'm saying as much as you fail and you, you know, have a setback, you learn from it and you become more than you're stronger. So if you have the same scenario again, You'll be better equipped if you manage to actually reflect and metacognitively kind of um, have a perspective on what happened. But then in sport, you have situations where, let's say, you look at a, a football match and you have a penalty kick and, and you miss the penalty. Do you really want to fail and feel like, oh, what have I done? I'm a useless player. I've let the team down. Or in the middle of a job interview, oh, I messed up that question. Or in the middle of a sales pitch. You don't really want that. So the first pathway is, yeah, okay, you failed. You reflect on it, you, you hurt a little bit and you learn from it. But the other pathway is these high pressure situations that you need to maintain this regular functioning. You know, how can you just stay optimistic? You know, it happened but you buffer that immediate feeling to, you know, to excel. So you miss the penalty kick, but you know what, you'll talk about that in the debrief and the video analysis afterwards. And, you know, in that kind of very much pressurized situation, that actually that's what's so important in sport, being resilient. That they chat about and at work in work uh, psychology don't actually talk about that much. That's part of my research is trying to say well if these are very similar situations, very similar population of you know non-life-threatening events. Well, what can we learn about the research that's already done, and where does it place resilience? Because people say resilience is born with trait as well. Well, he was born with it, and he's just not able to deal with that manner of stress. And look, he's just not a very resilient individual. And I say we have a capacity for resilience. But what you find is associated with I have in the paper these. 12, which is a lot of psychological resources that come up again and again and again that you can develop to maximize your capacity for resilience. <coughs> I look at it like in a balance when you know, the adversity is so high that actually you can't buffer it mm. and that actually you do have that performance uh, failure and then you have to have that routine learning from it, this kind of post-traumatic growth. Uh, but you might not even get to that place if those resources aren't, aren't set up beforehand. If you don't have a, a mentor to talk you through, if you don't have a very supportive staff, the number one resource I, I found was uh, support, and that's from support from a coach, and from family, from friends, uh, home life, that ability to be able to switch off and talk through things. The second thing was self-efficacy, very similar to self-confidence, but in a given domain. So your ability to achieve at work, your ability to achieve in sport, and how, how strong is that? You know, I think why the research is quite important and why we associate work and sport as well is that you know, you have this whole, um, you hear about this career depression, mm. this retirement, athlete's retirement. Yeah. Um, and all of a sudden, they, they've been in sport their whole life, and all of a sudden, they get an injury. Or they just retire, they've had enough of it, and they're like, all I've done my whole life is sport. Yeah. I know nothing else. But what this research is showing us is, actually, this is so, you know, there's a huge overlap in these same resources and metacognitive processes to deal with failure, to process it and learn from it, and even buffer these pressurized situations between work and sport. In sport, you know, the research compares um, chess to badminton to darts to swimming, which are completely different activities. And in work, we'll compare, you know, doctors to lawyers to, you know, to businessmen. And again, completely different. So you yeah. can really compare these two. That actually the skills you learn over time to handle pressure, to manage things, and that are so transferable uh, in life and life skills. And you know, the time you do in sport, and you see kids in elite sport, they're training in the morning, running to school, coming back, 
But, you know, it's, it's stressful life, but you learn to manage it and you don't just crash and blow up. You might blow up every now and again, but you have managed, you find ways to deal with that, to structure things, to keep perspective. And then, you know, everyday life and business, you know, you get up, have your family, get the kids to school, go to work, come back, you know, do your triathlon training. Yeah. You know, there's very transferable skills that, again, if you look at um, cognitive flexibility and adaptability to be able to build resilience at a young age, it's so important. How back do you, home and just here, a quick question on that. Yeah. How do you determine uh, when you're doing your research whether somebody has grown stronger as a person or whether they're just overcompensating for weakness? Yeah. So I'll give you an example. Like, let's say you have an alcoholic. Yeah. And they, they basically decide, right, that's it, I'm never going to drink again. And then we say, oh, well, they're, they're so strong, they managed to resist having alcohol. It's like, it's not. He's just, he's now, he cannot have a relationship with it. So he's just overcompensating for his weakness. Whereas yeah, yeah. Uh, what I would class as a, a truly strong person who's come out of that, they can now have that alcohol exactly, and then stop. Yeah, yeah. So that how, and that's exactly do? that metacognitive reflection, you know, that idea of, you know, the first one you talked about is avoidance. Hmm. That idea, something happened and let's just close it. Same idea if you, you know, the team loses. Jeez, that was absolutely terrible. Let's pretend that never happened. Hmm. Well, everything that happens, you can learn from it. And of course, we're looking for, this is more of a major stress, this kind of alcohol, you know, alcoholism, etc. And as you said, psychological resilience would be able to, you know, see what happened, be able to learn from it, and even being able to see, well, what happened, and who was I at that time, and what led to that happening? And that real self-awareness, that building that self-awareness and perspective of, you know what, these are these things that got me through that huge um, setback in my life, that actually could have gone one way or another, and now I've recovered from that. And understanding the process to getting back on track. So if you do fall back off, which, hey, it might happen, and because you're probably prone to it, and they say, you know, I'm going to talk about alcoholism, but understanding those pathways, mm. understanding, you know, you know, what what happens, or if I talk to my dad uh, after sport, you know, what it does nothing but, you know, um, doesn't help my confidence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Shit on me. So you know, and it's even small day-to-day -day things that if every day you were meeting with the same person, and every day they're late, yeah, and you just get pissed off every single day. Well, you're not really doing yourself any favors. You know, this guy's going to be late every day. So you kind of look at it as, as a, you know, people who, who are resilient often don't actually exercise, sorry, don't exercise resilience that often, you right. know, because they're smart enough, they don't have to. Mm. It's that idea of, you know, it's similar to self-control that, you know, every day, they say self-control works like a muscle, that every time you have to exercise or resist something, let's say you offer me a biscuit and I'm on a diet, say, no, I don't, want to, I don't want the biscuit. And then you offer it to me again. I'm probably more inclined to take it. It's an exhausting effect. It's a real Irish dad. But you sure? Yeah, you sure. Go on. Go, on. <laughs> go on there now. You'll have a biscuit. You will. You will go on. But but if every day you walk past <laughs> past the bakery to get home, yeah. every day you walk past that same bakery, and every day you have to resist. You have to exercise that resilience. I'd say the resilient person would do is find a maybe longer but a better route home. Sure. They don't put themselves in that scenario, so they don't have to exercise that resilience daily. So what you're talking now is the the things that help you, be, or the, what am I trying to say? You told me the positive character traits that help you become more resilient. Yeah. What did you find are the, are the barriers? What are the character traits that are the barriers to being resilient? Right. Yeah, that's actually, you know, that's actually very, very interesting. Because I, I, my paper actually didn't look into that. And that's actually something I haven't really looked into. And that's probably one of the downfalls of the positive psychologies, which I focus on. Right. New psychology focused on uh, what's wrong with people and why are people the way they are and you know, what causes depression. And for me, I'm focusing on um, what's right with people, people who are very resilient. What are those things that keep cropping up? What does the research show? So my answer to that would be people uh, with very little support, 
people with uh, low self-efficacy, people with not a lot of coping skills or strategies. Right. Um, coping skills would be things like mindfulness, uh, positive self-talk, and even uh, pre-performance routines, you know, post-work routines to switch off when you're home, putting, you know, the weekend, putting the mobile phone away. But they're small coping skills that keep coming up in the research as well. Your optimism and, you know, that idea to be able to just, you know, uh, get things in perspective. And that self-awareness, the ability to have control, the locus of control, how much of the situation is in your control. If it's not in your control, being able to acknowledge that. And again, I want to give you guys a link to the paper and feel free. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, making we'll, a few of helpful infographics that won't be that as huge. Around around yeah, we'll put it on, um, the, on the notes on the website as well. For but sure. at the moment, the research I'm doing at the moment to finish my PhD looks at 100 office workers just over eight weeks. So it's a, you'd say it's a longitudinal study, but quite a short one. I'm trying to figure out over eight weeks, well, what are the important resources that you see um, over the individuals? And what resources do they use? And, and what makes people be able to stay in this proactive goal pursuit. So I'm trying to look at, you know, what make people successful and if we say, you know, a good day at work is someone who's actually a good worker or someone who's proactive. So someone who, you know, is in an almost a psychological advantageous position. So I talk about the conservation of resources. So you have enough resources that you're happy to invest in more than rather you have so few resources or so low self confidence, you're not prepared to take risks or be proactive in the case that you get negative feedback and that actually that will affect you negatively. That actually, if you're in very, very resilient, you have so many resources, you're in a in a more advantageous position to take a risk and to actually be proactive. Or you propose an idea to the boss that you know, if you want proactive employees, and those resilience coincide with that, which the research seems to do. And if resilience coincides with that proactivity, what resources associate to develop resilience? And because again, the research isn't there to figure out. It's usually these people are resilient from what we've captured from these questionnaires. And all of a sudden, they're all millionaires. Yeah. Great. What do we associate with that? I'm saying, well, you know, one day I'm resilient, and my capacity is probably high for resilience. But if I crash the car on the way to work, how proactive am I going to be? Or you know, if I get, if I'm going to get fired today at work, and if I rock up straight from and get fired, okay, there's one reaction. But if I crash the car on the way to work, then have a fight with my wife over the phone, then get fired, I'm pretty sure my ability to be able to buffer that yeah. that stress is going to be different positions. Well, and a lot of the research said, actually, you know, it's never, ever, unchanging. You're resilient to you're not. Resilient to you're not. Right. I'm saying maybe that's so in, you know, th you know, third world countries and, you know, in, in this real major significant trauma. But in a day-to-day -day resilience and sports point of view, actually, we can develop it. And that's so valuable to know that because, you know, you know, anything is to do with consistency. If you want to be successful in anything, you need to be consistent. And that's really why you got into psychological resilience. It's all about consistency. Mm -hmm. Consistency is sticking with the program. Consistent, hard, high amount of uh, discretionary effort putting in. High quality work day after day. Being able to recover day after day. To be able to be consistent, it takes a lot of that resilience to be able to... There's ongoing issues and problems and injuries. Yeah. That it's uh, over time. How can you keep yourself in a high optimal psychological state to input that amount of effort or smart decisions day after day? That's why I'm saying resilience is so important because if we understand how it works, we can um, have predispose people or stack the odds in their favor that they already have these pathways of, you know, of when failure is going to happen because inevitably things are going to go wrong. Yeah. Like in an unpredictable world we live in, things are never going to go right. Yeah. 100%. You know. So yeah. knowing that is like, well, let's make sure we have avenues, or if we've had avenues before, well, what made me strong in that situation? What made me? What could I have done better? And that ability to be able to have an awareness on that straight away helps us in a better psychological position.
do you, do you have like particular daily routines and things that you do like just from what you've seen in the yeah I do like again it's, it's building an understanding and almost personal personality profiling like I know I'm someone who when I'm very stressed or I feel I'm not achieving something I take on 10 more things yeah. um, and that ability that if I feel like if I haven't done something I feel really annoyed at myself mm. so that ability to be able to say you know even saying okay these are five things that are good in my life or this is something actually I've been productive about and you know pat myself on the back because, I don't know, for me, and you maybe you guys are similar, but the minute I achieve something, well, I expected to achieve it. So that's yeah. great. Now that I've achieved that, geez, my mind's already jumped up. Now look what I can do. Yeah. So I'm even sure. happy that I've achieved that because I've been trying to do it for a month. So when it's done, it's like, oh, thank God it's done. But I never stop and stand and say, you know what, um, I've done a lot of things. And when, when I didn't swim in 2012 in the Olympics, that was one of the things that I had to do. I had to say, you know what, I was ace in World Championships last year. I'm a random kid from Ireland who managed to do that. And, you know, that's great. And the fact that, you know, we're very hard on ourselves where, let's say the day before a performance or the day before you're looking for an investment, you know, you're like, you know, you're shit hot, you know, your idea is genius. And all of a sudden something happens in the next 12 hours and you're like, you know what, I'm a failure. I can never do it. Yeah. Everything the past 12, 12 weeks I've done is actually all completely wrong. But actually there's nothing that could have happened in those 12 hours that could have taken you from that capability to that capability. Yeah. And it's trying to put that in perspective that, you know what, something happened. And maybe with bad feedback, but maybe let's not be this roller coaster of emotion. And that's where you start going. I think that's the learned process of people who become very, very high on highs and very low on lows. And as you have time and as you get perspective, you become maybe somewhat of a boring, uh, unemotional machine of, geez, I can't believe you just did that. Congratulations. Oh, thanks. Yeah, yeah. It was good. It was good. You know, you, know, you just published something. You know? yeah. I always thought I could do it. You know, you got to celebrate those things, but you don't get too excited. Yeah. Something goes terrible but you're not like rock bottom crying in your room for a week. Yeah. You get on with it. But those, you, you slowly build that up over time, but only through a good support system and you know, doing that hand in hand and kind of with reflective processes. And, and that's really what my research is about, is really trying to, you know, trying to put that in a, a, a very clear eggshell. Mm. That's what resilience is in an achievement, in an achievement context, very goal endeavor pursuits which is 90% of us in the world, well, in, in Dubai. So let's for, say, yeah. uh, let's say you're coasting, everything's great, and you're like, I'm due a fucking, I'm due something bad to happen. <laughs> everything's <laughs> going fine. Phase. Yeah. Where would you start? Like, where would you say, oh, actually, let's, let's put it this way. Go, look, I've just seen a crystal ball, <laughs> and I'm going to face, I'm going to get diagnosed with a medical condition in six months' time. Yeah. How can I, it's definitely going to happen, I need the tools to not let that, I don't know what's going to happen just yeah, after yeah, that. Yeah. So where would you advise somebody looking into the future, like I want, to, I want to become more resilient, so should anything happen to my family or whatever, I have a bit more of a capability to deal with it. Like what would you suggest? Yeah, like again, we're dealing with, we're, we're, we're intelligent people, and as much as you want to trick yourself, to be like, I'll be more optimistic, yeah. you know, <laughs> it doesn't really work <laughs> because you know, you're too smart, you can't lie to yourself. Yeah. But what you can do is things that have happened before and, you know, when any major problem you had, who did you talk to first? Or maybe you didn't want to tell your family and then you realize you're putting them through hell that you didn't tell them. So, you know, you learn from that perspective that happened before. The other thing is that idea of, you know, you're looking for other uplifts. So all those things that you feel you're progressing. Um, and, it, and maybe you're someone and number one is work. Work is so, or, or your sport is so, so important. Um, and that's all well and good. But you need to find something else to draw that kind of uplift from. Something that you're not just Chris the swimmer, you know, I'm Chris the performance resilient individual and I can pick myself up and you need to almost 
think about, you know, well, the fact that I'm actually, uh, you know, an unbelievable CrossFitter is because I use the same determination that I did in school and I do my work the same ferocity. Sure. And even though my business has gone down now, um, it doesn't mean that, you know, I'm actually I'm not a ferocious guy anymore because, you know, it's, I'm a product of what's happened. Mm. And it's actually putting these kind of, I call it cornerstones in place of what do you really know um, and what do you know for sure. And if you have a question about it, I'm a true believer in writing it down. Okay, you know what, I'm, I'm actually not as strong as I thought I was. And put it down. And even right out of 10, yeah, I'm not as strong as I thought I was. Right now, you know, I'm broken. I'm saying, yes, I believe that 9 out of 10. You know, and then how do you rephrase that a little bit? You know, right now, um, right now I'm, I'm, I can only get stronger from here. Or something, you know, where no, no words like or should or could, just mm -hmm. something that you believe, you know, I can get, I'll only get stronger from If you're rock bottom, you're probably going to get stronger from here. And then say, okay, well, you know what, my wife, I have some great friends around me, and I know how to pick myself up, or I have some great friends around me. How much do you believe that? And slowly, it's just trying to figure out what you really know. You know, it, because the biggest problem for most of us is there's so many things rolling around in our head, we never actually have to come to terms with them. Now, the biggest thing I notice is when I'm on public transport, um, is how many people are actually sitting there on that train or bus. And most time, it's only me thinking about it, because someone's... Uh, on Facebook and look, and they're at their friend's birthday party back home. They are uh, texting their their friend somewhere else. They're in their head thinking about what they have to do for work. They're thinking about the fight they had with their partner earlier that day. No one is really sitting on that train. You know, everyone's doing something else at another point of time. And you have so many things going on, and you're distracting yourself on your phone of someone else's life that you're not actually letting yourself figure out what what's going on. And I'm stressed to the nines. Why am I so shook? You know, and maybe people don't have the set of skills to, be able to sit down and do that themselves. Maybe they need to go and see and have a chat with someone, or you know, have a beer and sit down with a friend and be like, you know, and figure out well, what are the things that if I try to switch my head off, keep shouting. Now that's what I generally do week to week. I, I you know, because I'm inclined this way, there's a lot of buzz around my head, so I sit down and I try to sit up, sit, sit and think about nothing. I do a bit of mindfulness, and people talk about mindfulness and a bit airy fairy, but for me, it's trying to slow my mind down to try to figure out well, what's going on. I sit down, sit down, and I try to, you know, just focus on my breath, feel my stomach expanding and contracting, and try to just think about that. And all of a sudden, I can't because I'm like, I have to get this done for work, I have to connect this client. So I write that down, and I know I'm not going to forget it. It's stressing because I'm afraid I'm going to forget it. And then I go again, and all of a sudden, boof, something else comes in. And I write it down. When I write it down, it's there, so I don't have to keep it in my head. And slowly, I make my to-do list for the week, mm. and I break it down to, like, PhD stuff, my own training stuff, my client stuff, my work stuff. And I kind of feel a bit more together. Yeah. Because I'm not afraid I'm going to... And it's and to be honest, they're small habits you build up. This will work for some people, and it won't work for other people. Yeah. And, but it's about, you know, and if you, it's about trying to figure these small hacks out. And, and that's what I'm saying. You know, resilience is in these kind of day-to-day -day habits, this daily stress and hassle. It's just trying to put it into perspective. And it's not about... You find, what I'm finding with the research at the moment, because I have all the data, is resilience people... I feel the exact same amount of stress and hassle than anyone else, but they find more uplift day to day. Yeah. And they're able to, and, but they don't feel as much negative affect. So that actual feeling of, you know, fatigue and stress, and, but they experience the exact same amount of hassle. They just appraise it differently. Um, and that's, you know, and that's maybe down to what your parents, the way your parents taught you, or where they didn't teach you, or just the way, you know, last year I was diagnosed with cancer and now I've, Broken my toe, and you know it could be worse. Yeah, so. <laughs> you know it's it's just 
you know, but it's only being able to look at things like that. And you have people, and no matter what's going on in their lives, they'll let themselves stress about something. And maybe you realize I'm the kind of person that always needs to feel like I'm stressed about something because I actually don't have a lot going on in my life, so I need to feel like I'm stressed, so I'm doing something. Yeah. Um, and but acknowledging that for because you will drive yourself to the brink. Because every single person, no matter what's going on, my mother used to always say, <coughs> and this might sound, sorry, from a Irish racial point of view, but geez, you know, the kids are starving in Africa, you're nothing to complain about. Yeah. And I'm a true believer that, you know, if you know, if I if I'm depressed or if I have something seriously wrong, the the feelings I'm feeling are um you know you know, kind of physiologically the same. Um, as those kids, well not the exact same, but if I, I could feel like, you know, absolutely a ton of bricks, think I'm the worst position in the world, but I'm living in a villa in Dubai and I'm well fed every day, but I, and then the kids in Africa are starving, but, you know, they're, they're fine, it's all perspective. Yeah. You know, you, you know as much as, it, there's no empathy there, let yourself say, you know, you are feeling like crap, because you're not, you know, oh, I'm such a useless individual, I'm living in Dubai, life is great, but you're still feeling crap. That's okay to feel like crap because yeah, yeah. that's just you know you have the you're, right you're comparing to yourself to those people all the time, and that's the biggest problem with bosses I find you know is that empathy of you know you know oh, well it could be better it will be great you know, so I'm more saying like actually you know what that is shit but you know it's all right we'll we'll, we'll power through yeah. not being like oh no we just stop complaining you know you get paid loads of money <laughs> you know yeah. it's like. You know, it doesn't work. But it's small things yeah. like that to try to... But if I read something exactly, uh, that exact point you just made where you're saying, I'm feeling the exact same as the kids in Africa. Like, you're, yeah. all human beings are bound by yeah. a physiological threshold of, like, there's only so much exactly. dopamine that I can produce. There's only so much serotonin I can it produce. It very, sounds very selfish. Yeah. You feel yeah. very selfish. You're human. And, yeah. uh, but the, the article is relating it to happiness. So the person who's a billionaire and they just bought a yacht is experiencing the same level of happiness as a kid in Africa who's yeah. just got a sandwich. Exactly. and they're yeah, already exactly. seeing it from that framework yeah, it's like yeah, yeah. okay well fuck then what do I really need the boat and do you, yeah, it's like exactly. experience this happiness yeah. elsewhere you know? yeah psychology is so look, it, it's printed <clears> to everything and that's why it's yeah. easy to waffle as I, as I have but, no it's great man. you know it's uh, yeah no it's perspective where um, just to have the, where can they find you we'll, we'll wrap it up now where can they get a hold of you so you get a well I, I know, uh, on Twitter I'm, I'm going to try to be a bit more active with it so my, uh, my name is Chris Eggsnarf just swimming at C-H-O-R-I-S-A-G-S-N-A-M-H. Chris Ixnaw, which is Chris swimming in Irish. Yeah. I got it off uh, Sonia O'Sullivan, you know, the Olympic silver medalist. We did a talk together and her, her name is uh, Sonia Egre. Oh, was it? And I asked her, gee, it's a great idea. Do you mind if I do it on the <laughs> swimming good. side? So. <laughs> and uh, are you on Instagram? Uh, I, I, I am, but I'm not very active on it. It would be Twitter is probably the best way. Twitter's, and what's um, the research report? Uh, and ResearchGate, but yeah. again, there'll be all links to my paper from... Uh, we'll spread it around on it. We'll put it on the Twitter. If somebody was to like Google that. it, what would they Google? To get and the title of the paper was uh, is Stressing the Relevance of Resilience. Perfect. Um, and, and, you know, Psychological Resilience in Working Sports. But uh, you'll find it. Cool. Um, Awesome, man. Cool. All right, well, cheers, man. That was awesome. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. Um, Matt, do you have anything to add before nope. we go? Nope. All right, nope. cool. Well, cheers, Chris. We'll be back again uh, sometime quite soon because we have a lot in the can nice. lined up ahead of us. All right, cheers. See you. Bye-bye. Bye.